Thank you, uh, Pastor Adrian, for uh, leading us in service, and Shermaine and uh, the music team for leading us in singing praises to our Lord. Isn't it so good that we can come together once again uh, as God's people? <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, before I begin this uh, sermon, please allow me to open us in a word of prayer. Okay? Father, we come before you to ask for your help this afternoon. Please um, strengthen my hands and steady my feeble lips to proclaim your words with clarity and faithfulness. I so pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that may you uh, give them tender hearts to receive your words with gladness and may your words take root in their hearts to bear fruit for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on 20th of April 2004 at about 3.30pm, a section of the Circle Line tunnel at Nickel Highway collapsed. The disaster occurred due to the collapse of a temporary retaining wall of the tunnel. As the wall could not handle the stress of holding up the tunnel, forcing it to give way. And four men were tragically killed. And three others were injured on that fateful day. And one of the deceased was John Tan, an LTA engineer. Uncle John lived next block to me. And his daughter was my classmate. So uh, whenever I overslept and reached being late for school, I would call him up, I would call the daughter up, and Uncle John would kindly give me a ride to school. And due to the collapse, the stretch of Nickel Highway was closed for seven months, and the whole Circle Line project was delayed for three years. Who knows? A lapse in concentration. A mistake in the calculation and an overestimation of the strength of the temporary retaining wall would, re would result in such a great tragedy. Nehemiah didn't have a retaining wall problem, but he faced all kinds of problems when rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So just to refresh our memory, I will do a quick recap. Back in chapter 1, he was burdened to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and he prayed to God for help. And in chapter 2, God granted him favor and support of the Persian king, King Arthur Xerxes. So Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem to start the project. Chapter 3, he gathers the people, the, the ordinary folks, to rebuild. And chapter 4, Nehemiah faces hostile threats, external enemies who oppose God's work and threaten to invade them. And last week, Pastor Joe preached chapter 5, where Nehemiah faced internal issues of social injustice, where the Jewish nobles and officials exploited and treated the poor amongst them badly. And this week in chapter 6, the, re the rebuilding of the wall is near its completion. How would the enemies attempt to hinder them? What other schemes would they use this time? So from verses 1 to 4, we see that they use deception and distraction. You see, their initial strategy in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 8, is a direct invasion of Jerusalem. And when the enemies heard that the war is closing, the work is almost complete, except for the installation of the doors, that invasion plan is no longer feasible. So they change tactics and now adopt a more covert strategy. So Sambalang and Geshem send a message to Nehemiah. 
And just to give us a little background context, according to commentators, Sambalang is an official, or probably even the governor of Samaria, a counterpart to Nehemiah, who's the governor of Jerusalem. So they invited Nehemiah to meet with them for this diplom diplomatic meeting in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And here's a map of uh, the rendezvous location. The plains of Ono is on neutral ground. On the surface, this invitation seems to be a cordial one, isn't it? But Nehemiah smells a rat. That is a trap. He knew right away that they were scheming to harm him. And with a meeting place like Ono, it's a date giveaway that this place spells danger. Key lesson for us, we see that Nehemiah knew that his enemies are like prowling lions waiting to pounce on him. And the same thing is echoed in the New Testament for us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So oftentimes, Satan, the enemy, would camouflage and disguise his schemes. So brothers and sisters in Christ, watch and pray. Don't be a sleeping Christian. I know that icon is very cool and comfortable now, right? Don't be a sleeping Christian that we don't even know when our enemies are right at our doorstep. And we see that Nehemiah is targeted because why? Because he's their leader. Once he falls, the rest will follow. Likewise, the enemy often targets the leaders of the church, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the DG leaders. And remember how RZIM collapsed once Ravi Zacharias fall and his sexual misconduct exposed. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I plead with you to pray for your leaders that we will watch our lives and our doctrine closely. As for the enemy's invitation to meet the plains of Oh No, was about a day's journey away from Jerusalem to get there and back. And their schemes, their scheme would distract Nehemiah from his task at hand, taking him away from finishing the war and creating unnecessary delay. And likewise, our enemy, Satan, is also trying to hinder and distract us. According to Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, Satan is most active right now, when God's words is being taught. According to Mark 4, verse 15, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. So Satan wants to distract us from listening to God with our phones and our gadgets and the devil would come and take away the word from our hearts so that we can never bear fruit for God. And how did Nehemiah respond to their deception and distraction? Well, we see in verse, verses 3 and 4, he remains focused on the task at hand. And he politely declined with, I have more important priorities. In verse 3, we, we read that he replied them, I'm carrying on a great project. I have an important work at hand and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? 
uh, those of us who use uh, IM on our, on our laptops, office laptops, you know that Nehemiah has put up a I'm busy right now notification on his computer. But God's enemies do not rest on their laurels. They are determined to stop us. In verse 4, we see that four times they sent me the same message. It's a bit like those uh, annoying scammers, right? They just keep calling you. They just refuse to stop calling. And each time I gave them the same answer. See, the enemy's persistence is only matched by Nehemiah's resoluteness on his God-given task. And so what other schemes will the enemy deploy to stumble them? Well, we see in verses 5 and following, Then the fifth time, Sambalak sent his aid to me with the same message. And in, his, and in his hand was an unsealed letter, in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gershom says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the war. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. This time, they spread false accusation against Nehemiah. They sent an unsealed letter, an open letter, so that anyone can read its content while the letter is in transit. Their intention was for the content of the letter to spread. It was the perfect ploy to propagate and spread fake news. And to give credibility to its content, they begin with this. In verse 6, it is reported among the nations. They claim to have testimony amongst the nations. You know, it's like sometimes when your friend wants to tell you something, right, they say, uh, many people say uh, that you are quite a terrible person. But who's this many people? Sometimes it's them, uh, right? Yeah. And then he quoted, and Gershem says, no, Gershem says it is true, as if Gershem is some subject matter expert. You know how sometimes people say, oh, no, coffee is good for you. Then they will quote a certain doctor. Then you look carefully, this doctor is not even a medical doctor, right? And so we see that the false accusation hurled against Nehemiah can be summarized in three points. The first, they mentioned that the reason why you are building the wall is because you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. It's an accusation of a rebellion. It's an attack on the war. And they have also implicated the Jews. The second point they brought up is an attack on Nehemiah, that you want to be their king. It's an accusation of treason against King Artaxerxes. And the third we see, they mention that you even got the prophets to divinely confirm your appointment and inaugurate you in Jerusalem. Back in the Old Testament, the prophets are the kingmakers. They're the one who receive prophecy from God, and they are the one who will anoint future kings. But what did they hope to achieve with this unsealed letter? Well, the purpose of their letter was to exert pressure on Nehemiah by spreading fear amongst the Jews. 
Because the Jews and the prophets are now implicated in this conspiracy, this so-called rebellion of rebuilding the war and installing Nehemiah as king. A serious charge of treason carries the death penalty. And so their disinformation would sway public opinion against Nehemiah. His approval ratings would fall, and it would cause the Jews to abandon the completion of the war. I guess that's why uh, Trump never got his war completed. And they also offer Nehemiah, in verse 7, a pseudo-olive branch. This is what they wrote. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. It's a bit like telling him, I know your secrets. Come, let's stop. See, it was a no-win situation for Nehemiah. Why? Because if he meets them, then they might seize the opportunity to harm him. But if he refused to meet them, then they will inform King Artaxerxes about his disloyalty. So what lessons are there for us in this part? We see throughout church history, there have always been false accusations and disinformation about Christianity. And it's always the same old lies. The first century church is accused of being cannibals. Why cannibals? Because we, whenever we gather, we gather to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. And we are known to be secret sect. No, we are disloyal to the emperor and anti-government because we bow to another king. And we practice incest. Why? Because brothers and sisters marries each other. And Nero, Nero fabricated accusations that Christians are the ones who start the great fire of Rome, making Christians Rome's public enemy number one. And today, today they paint God's people as the bad guys. We are the party poopers. They are progressive. We are regressive. They are love. We are hatred. They are tolerant. We are intolerant. We discriminate. We are bigots. We are anti-women's rights. We are hypocrites, two-faced, small-minded. And their lies are repeated on both mainstream and social media, in books and in movies. So it's either you listen to them or I cancel you out. And we face social exclusion if we don't give in to them. In 2014, Richard Page, a former magistrate in UK, he, he objected to an adoption application by a same-sex couple. And he told his colleagues he has an issue with the idea of a same-sex couple adopting the child. And so he was removed from the bench and sent for diversity training. And he was dismissed in 2016. Although he tries to appeal to the Supreme Court, the appeal judges refused to grant permission for Mr. Page to take his case up to the courts. And Mr. Page said he acted in the best interest of the child and based on his beliefs that the child is best cared for by a man and a woman. And Andrea Williams, the chief executive of the Christian Legal Center, comments on the Richard Page case. This is what she said. The judgment sends a direct message to Christian public servants that if they allow their beliefs to influence their decision-making while in public office, 
they must self-censor and be silent and are ultimately unfit for that office. See, the irony is this. The LGBT camp is coming out and while we end up being closet Christians, we are squeezed out of public spaces. So how did Nehemiah respond to their lies and false accusation against him? We see that Nehemiah stands firm because he knows that their intention is to intimidate him so that he's too scared to carry on the work. And so he replied to them in verse 8 and 9, I sent him this reply, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. If Nehemiah is Singaporean, uh, his reply will be shortened to your head, lah, right? That is there. And unlike the retaining wall of Nickel Highway, Nehemiah didn't overestimate his own strength. He's shrewd. He, he recognizes that he needs God's help. After all, why depend on yourself when you can depend on God, isn't it? And so in verse 9, he prays steadfastly to God. And, but he didn't pray for his problems to go away or his burdens to be lightened. But he prayed for broader shoulders, for strength to persevere on with the work. And so once again, the enemy comes out with a third and final scheme. This time, they use intimidation. Seen in verse 10. Uh, can I invite you to read this passage together? Okay. Okay, one, two. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. So previously, it was a long-distance intimidation via a letter. But now the intimidation moves closer and closer to home and in person. So Tobiah and Sambalak conspire with Shemaiah, a prophet against Nehemiah. Uh, we are not quite sure why Shemaiah, we're not quite sure why he works from home, right? Because he's a stay-at-home prophet. But what we know is that he prophesizes and plays up a threat that the enemies are coming to kill Nehemiah. And the game plan was to paralyze Nehemiah with fear and hinder his ability to complete God's work. To magnify the enemy's ability to harm him so that Nehemiah doubt God's ability to help him and to take matters into his own hands by hiding in the inner sanctuary of the temple as suggested by Shema'aya. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you this question. What intimidates you? What makes you frightened? Sickness, being diagnosed with end-stage cancer? Singleness? Suffering? The uncertainty of your future? Being cancelled out by others? Or for students, exams and failures? See, Satan knows our fears and will work on them. He will magnify our fears to give us the impression that our fears are greater than God. He wants us to be so consumed by fear 
so that we are unable to live out God's purposes in our lives. So brothers and sisters in Christ, know this. Know that our God is bigger than all your fears and give them all to Him. Why depend on yourself when you can depend on God? And ultimately, Satan wants us to doubt God. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, Satan makes Adam and Eve doubt God's love for them by making them question why did God disallow them to eat from this particular tree? Is it because God is hiding something from them? And we know that insecure people do stupid things. So they end up rejecting God and took matters into their own hands and messed their lives up and ours too. And for Israel, they doubt God's ability to help them. So they put their trust in political alliances and other gods. And when we are discouraged by our circumstances, we become vulnerable to Satan's lies of doubting God. We doubt God's love in times of crisis, suffering, and hardship. When we don't trust God to save us or resolve our crisis, we turn to other gods. And I kid you not, huh? this is a true story. It happened recently. A Christian asked me if it's okay to seek a medium's advice because he was going through some trouble in life. Without God's care and providence for us, we trust in wealth and the works of our own hands. We try to secure our security and future with material possession. Without God's acceptance for us, so we try to work and earn our way into God's kingdom. We do not trust our future, our happiness into God's hands. So we take matters into our own hands and try to secure our future happiness by disobeying Him and dating and marrying non-believers. But 1 John chapter 4 assures us that God is love and He's on our side. Verse 16 and 18 reads, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, when the realization of God's love for us penetrates our hearts and minds, that we are, then we are made perfect in love. And fear, fear is no more. And I guess Don Moen's song, Think About His Love, sort of summarized this passage quite nicely. I, sorry, I can't sing. I, I croak. So I'll just read the lyrics for you, okay? Think about His love. Think about His goodness. Think about His grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Great is the measure of our Father's love. Whenever Satan tempts you to despair, think about the cross. Think about the length and depth that God goes through to save you. Moving on, how did Nehemiah respond to their intimidation? We see in verse 11 to 13. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalak had hired him. 
He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. See, Nehemiah refused to vouch on two grounds. Firstly, as the leader and governor of the people, how can he run away? How can he be such a coward? You know, like what is happening in Ukraine right now, if President Zelensky goes into exile, goes into hiding, do you think we'll, the Ukrainians will continue to fight to defend Ukraine? Or imagine that a war broke out in Singapore. Imagine only, huh? And PM Lee takes flight and flees to Australia. Would you still remain behind to defend our nation? I guess uh, most of us would probably be on the same flight as him, right? And if he flees into hiding, it will surely affect the people's morale. And so Nehemiah, he stands firm in his faith and conviction. And verse 12 and 13 tells us, secondly, he's not a priest. Nehemiah, he's an administrator. He's a governor. He would defile the temple if he enters it. And worse, he would have been struck dead by God if he were to enter into the inner sanctuary. And he sends that someone who gives such lousy and bad advice cannot be from God. And he prays not for personal vengeance, but for vindication, asking God to remember the deeds of his enemies and leave vengeance into the hands of God. This is his prayer in verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalak, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. See, according to verse 14, this is not simply an isolated incident. Nehemiah faces numerous threats from his own people, his fellow Jews, prophets who serve men rather than God. But despite all the opposition, we read good news in verse 15. So the war was completed on the 25th day of Elud, in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about it, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Despite the hostility and fierce opposition, the war was completed in 52 days. That's very fast. You know, sometimes uh, some of our contractors cannot even finish uh, renovating our house in two months, right? And remember, these are ordinary folks. They're not expert war builders. And verse 16 tells us the completion of the war caused the enemies and the surrounding nations to realize that God was on the side of Nehemiah. They were afraid and awed and lost self-confidence. So in a way, Sambalak's opposition actually brought about wider recognition of God's power as Nehemiah completed the war in spite of their fierce opposition. Try as they might, God always wins. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. And in the ending, we see verses 17 to 19. It's basically a postscript of the persistence of the enemies. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehohanah, 
had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. In verse 17, in those days, suggests that the event from verses 17 and 19 may not be chronological, but ongoing. Nobles who honours Tobiah instead of honouring God. Because they had business contracts, they were under oath, and had marriage connections with Tobiah. And the persistent campaign to spread this information and harassment designed to wear down Nehemiah continues throughout his time in Jerusalem. And even, even if the world around Nehemiah collapsed, he didn't, because his confidence is in the Lord. And about 400 years later, another like Nehemiah came into the scene. He also faced fierce opposition from his enemies. He was distracted and tempted by Satan to bow down to him. He was accused and demonized, being called Beelzebub, prince of the demons. He was intimidated by his own people, the Jewish leaders who cried out for his blood. He was discouraged and betrayed when his own disciples forsaken him in his darkest moments. The enemies thought that he was defeated when they neared him to the cross, only for him to rise victoriously from the dead, defeating his enemies once and for all, thus securing the salvation of those who are easily distracted, intimidated, and discouraged. Throughout 2,000 years of church history, the church of Jesus Christ has outlived and outlasted all its enemies, and it will continue to do so. For unlike the walls of Nickel Highway, the foundation of God's kingdom will not collapse, for it is established on Christ, the chief cornerstone. So brothers and sisters in Christ, opposition, hostility will surely come our way, but stand firm in our Lord, for our victory is already secured in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you send the faithful one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who stood firm in the face of hostility to give his life to us on the cross, to redeem us, people who act like scared little children, who are easily discouraged, intimidated, and often we even buy into the lies of the devil. So, Father, in areas where we have fall short, forgive us and help us to cling to our chief cornerstone. We pray all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.